Hello, and thanks for joining me for another episode of the History of Christianity. I'm Bertie Pearson. I'm the rector of Grace Episcopal Church in Georgetown, Texas, and I've also spent the better part of the last decade teaching church history at the Iona School for Ministry and occasionally at the Seminary of the Southwest. It's great to be with you. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. There are many confusing things in trying to think about what we believe about the Holy Spirit. And in part, this is because, as we are told by Christ, the Holy Spirit does not come to reveal himself. He comes to reveal Christ. He comes to illuminate Christ, to make all things that Christ said and did and is present to us. But that means when we're trying to think about him specifically, it's very challenging. St. Simeon, the new theologian, has a wonderful prayer that sums up both the essential nature of the contemplation of the Holy Spirit to the Christian enterprise, and also the, in a sense, impossibility of total contemplation of the Holy Spirit. So together, let us pray. Come, true light. Come, eternal light. Come, hidden mystery. Come, treasure without name. Come, reality beyond all words. Come, person beyond all understanding. Come, unfailing expectation of all those who are being saved. Come, invisible, whom none may touch and handle. Come, for your name fills our hearts with longing and is ever on our lips. Yet who you are and what your nature is, we cannot say or know. Come, for you are yourself the desire that is within me. Come, my breath and my life. Come, my joy, my glory, my endless delight. God the Holy Spirit is our breath and our life. God the Holy Spirit is the desire for God within us, or the, the, the source of the desire for God within us. God the Holy Spirit is our joy our glory, our endless delight. But he is also one who is invisible, whom none may touch and handle. He is the hidden mystery, the treasure without name, the reality beyond all words. In the New Testament, Christ speaks of sending the Holy Spirit to the apostles, sending the Holy Spirit upon the world and to the church. We see the apostles filled with the Holy Spirit and they are transformed. And we see the Holy Spirit coming upon those who are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is changing and transforming. In one sense, he is absent before and then made present to those people. But that's just in one sense. Because on the other hand, the Holy Spirit is the giver of life. So, at the very beginning of creation, in Genesis chapter 1, page 1, we see God the Father present, and he begins creating through God the Word, and then we're told God the Spirit hovers over the waters. If you look in your Bible, this might say the Spirit of God 
hovers over the waters, a spirit of God hovers over the waters, a wind from God hovers over the waters, the breath of God hovers over the waters. And these are attempts to translate this this Hebrew term ruach. And ruach, it means wind, it means breath, it means your life breath, the life within you, it means everything that we mean by spirit. It is this of God, God's this, God's ruach, that is present at the beginning of the creation. It is God, the Holy Spirit, who is present. There are sometimes mistaken understandings of God, the Holy Spirit, as though the Holy Spirit were an energy which emanates from God, or a force that God uses, or some sort of force field surrounding things, or something like that. But those are to depersonalize one who is essentially a person. In the 63rd chapter of Isaiah, a group rebels against God, and we're told that they grieve the Holy Spirit. They produce grief in the Holy Spirit. So, if the Holy Spirit is a force field, or a ball of energy, or a lightning bolt, or whatever it is, those things can't experience grief. Those things are not made sad by someone's turning their back upon God. Instead, the Holy Spirit is a person, one of the three persons of the Trinity. When Adam is formed out of clay, God breathes into his nostrils. God imbues him with his own life breath, with his own Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit of God. It is God, the Holy Spirit, that enters into Adam and gives him life. We call him in the creed, the maker of life or the giver of life. All life is produced by God, the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who is giving us this gift of life, who is creating life within us and everything in the world. So how can we possibly say that Christ sends the Holy Spirit or gives the Holy Spirit to the church or that baptism imbues people with the Holy Spirit when just to be alive is to be completely maintained by God the Holy Spirit. St. Basil of Caesarea said that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, not according to his power, but according to our capacity. So the Holy Spirit is flooding the entire creation, is maintaining the entire creation, is imbuing the entire creation with the gift of life. God the Holy Spirit is very much Him in whom we live and move and have our being. On the other hand, we are also filled with the Holy Spirit to our capacity. So in the Old Testament, you see lots of people who are living which are, their lives are clearly maintained by God the Holy Spirit, but then you also have people to whom the Spirit comes in a special way, and as we say in English, inspires this word that actually comes from the word Spirit. The Holy Spirit inspires the prophets. The Holy Spirit speaks through the prophets. The Holy Spirit transforms the prophets. The prophet Micah says, But as for me, I am filled with power with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So for Micah, it was the Holy Spirit filling him that made him able to proclaim to the people God's will. We sometimes think about prophecy as the ability to know the future, as though you're this kind of like amazing weather forecaster or Nostradamus or a fortune cookie or whatever. That's not what prophecy is. Prophecy is speaking the will of God to his people. 
And this sometimes involves the future. This sometimes involves things you did in the past, but it is always about the present. It is always about right now. It is always about what you are doing right now that is either moving away from God or closer to God. And as a prophet, I will tell you, here's what will happen if you continue on this trajectory of moving away from God, and here's what will happen if you repent and return to the Lord. If you turn your back on turning your back on God and start to move towards God again. So you have someone like the prophet Jonah who goes to preach to the city of Nineveh and he's telling the future. He's saying, here's what's going to happen in 40 days. All this stuff's going to happen. It's going to be awful. It's going to be terrible. And the people of Nineveh say, oh, that sounds awful and terrible. We will repent. And they put away their evil ways and they return to goodness and love and peace and joy and no longer enslaving foreign peoples and destroying their cities and burning everything with fire. And so God doesn't do the things that Jonah had proclaimed, not because Jonah was wrong or Jonah misheard the message or something like that, but because the prophecy is about the present. So it is God, the Holy Spirit, that fills the prophets and empowers them to proclaim God's will to his people. King David, and there are some people who say King David didn't write the Psalms whatever, doesn't really matter. But King David in Psalm 51 says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. So King David, who is both king and prophet, King David identifies the Holy Spirit of God as being that which is empowering him, that which is enlightening him, illuminating him. It is God, the Holy Spirit, that is God's best gift to King David. And yet, in St. John's Gospel, when Christ is talking about the sending of the Holy Spirit, John says, Now he said this about the Spirit, which believers in him were to receive. For as yet, there was no spirit, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So what does this mean? Again, back to Basil, it is not a a question of the presence of the Spirit, or the existence, certainly, of the the Holy Spirit of God, um, but of our capacity. So, at the Pentecost, everything in the Apostles changes. Before the Pentecost, the Apostles are very much like you and me. They're just kind of regular people trying to figure out what the heck is going on. So they are in a boat and Christ starts teaching and he says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Herodians. And they say, leaven, yeast. Oh, he's mad because we forgot to buy bread. We had this curbside order for pickup. We were going to put bread in the cart. We forgot to do it. Now he's frustrated with us. And he says, what are you talking about? I'm not, you think that I need you to buy bread for me? Did you not just see the loaves that I divided, the fish that I divided? No, I'm trying to teach you something really important. So they're they're constantly kind of bumbling. They're, uh, they deny Christ. They abandon Christ. These are, these are not um, these sort of like fictional, Uh, upstanding sages or heroes of the faith. They are so ordinary and so human. But then, after the Pentecost happens, after they are gathered together, they hear the sound of a rushing wind, tongues of flame appear above each of them, and they are filled with the Holy Spirit. They just go out. 
They are fearless. They go out to the four corners of the world. Thomas may have gone to India. Others gone to, like, uh, Peter went to Antioch and Syria and then to Rome. Um, the disciple Mark goes to Rome and then goes to Egypt. They go all over the world. And they are proclaiming this completely incomprehensible message that there is one God, that the gods of the pagans, the gods of the nations are as nothing compared to God. And that God is three persons. And one of those persons became a baby in middle of nowhere, Palestine. And people are like, what are you talking about? But rather than getting kicked out of town and ridden out on a rail and tarred and feathered, everywhere they go, they establish these churches. And pretty soon to be a member of one of these churches means that you are liable to horrible persecution, to being shunned by all of your friends and your family, and eventually to being martyred in a coliseum, eaten by a lion or torn apart by gladiators or something. And these churches are growing like crazy. It makes no sense whatsoever. It is astonishing. It is totally and utterly miraculous. And all of this is through the power of the Holy Spirit, of God the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. And what happens to them at the Pentecost is not that the Holy Spirit is created or the Holy Spirit suddenly comes to earth, but that their capacity for the Holy Spirit is enlarged. Their hearts are made bigger. They can contain more of God. They become vessels of God in a special way. If you think about the temple in Jerusalem, nobody was ever confused about God living in the temple in the way that Zeus lives on Mount Olympus or Poseidon lives at the bottom of the sea. So for the ancient Greeks, Zeus actually lived on Mount Olympus. You could, in some mystical way, go knock on the door of Zeus's house. Whereas for ancient Judaism, there wasn't a sense that when God was in the temple, he wasn't somewhere else. He wasn't in Egypt. He wasn't in Ethiopia. He wasn't in Rome. That he just sort of left all of his duties in the universe and just came and hang out in the temple. No, in Judaism, there was the sense that God was infinitely beyond the entire creation. God was not only present everywhere, but infinitely beyond present everywhere. And yet, he also was present in and to the temple in a deeply profound, holy, beautiful way. His glory would rest upon the temple. He would be present in the Holy of Holies in this very special way. And this is what happens to Christians in baptism. We become temples of God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit dwells with us in a special way, a new way, a transformative way. It's not that he is absent from the rest of creation if he is in our hearts, uh, but instead our capacity for him is enlarged. And so what does this do? Does this give us superpowers? Does this make us superhuman? Yes and no. There's a wonderful quote from the Eastern Orthodox patriarch Ignatius IV, who says, Without the Holy Spirit, God is far off. Christ is in the past. The gospel is a dead letter. The church is only an organization. Authority is domination. Mission is propaganda. Worship is mere mouthing of words. And Christian action is slave morality. So without the Holy Spirit, God is far off. God is incomprehensible, inscrutable, 
infinitely distant from creation. But with the Holy Spirit praying in us and praying through us, God is knowable, not by us, but by God within us. God working within us, God praying within us. Without the Holy Spirit, Christ is a historical personage who may or may not have been important for some reason. Christ is someone who lived and died and rose again 2,000 years ago, which is so far from me that what can I really know about him? I can read some stuff about him, but like, what does that really teach me? With the Holy Spirit, Christ is actually present. I become present at the Last Supper. I become present at the crucifixion. It is God, the Holy Spirit, who is transforming me to understand Christ, to know Christ, to not only remember Christ in the sense of a vague memory from long ago, but to actually be there with him, walking with him in the streets of Jerusalem, being taught by him. Without the Holy Spirit, the gospel is a dead letter. It's full of wisdom, full of beauty, full of joy and light and enlightenment, and it never arrives at my house. Because without the Holy Spirit, I can't even begin to comprehend the gospel. The church is only an organization. It's got bills to pay. It's got 10-year plans to accomplish. It's got campuses to build. It's got boxes to check on a to-do list. And that's it. With the Holy Spirit... In the Holy Spirit, the church is the hands and feet of Christ. The church is the voice of Christ in the world, proclaiming his gospel. The church is the hands of Christ, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked. The church is the feet of Christ, visiting the sick, visiting the imprisoned. Authority without the Holy Spirit is domination. Authority means, I'm the boss, you do what I say, get in line, ship up or ship out. In the Holy Spirit, authority becomes servanthood. Christ said, I came not to to be served, but to serve. And this is what authority looks like in a church led by the Spirit. Each level of the authority becomes a different level, a lower level in a sense of servanthood, in which you have the laity who are served by deacons and priests, the deacons, priests, and laity who are served by the bishop, the bishops who are served by an archbishop or whatever it is. Each one becomes a servant of the other Christians. Mission is propaganda. I'm right and you're wrong. My job as a Christian is to convince you that whatever you're doing, it's wrong, and you need to be like me. I judge you. You need to step in line and follow me. Worship is mere mouthing of words. All right, just read these prayers. Just get, go every Sunday for an hour, and then you're good, and uh, then you're, you know, God likes you. And so, in the Holy Spirit, these words become transformative of us. We are focused on these words, we live into these words, and a prayer like the Our Father becomes the most beautiful expression of Christianity, not just something to memorize and say by rote when you have to. In Christian action is slave morality. Christian action without the Holy Spirit, oh, love your enemies, pray for your enemies, uh, share what you have. This is just kind of like being a doormat. It's being walked all over. In the Holy Spirit, this is turning all the morality of the world on its head. 
It is saying, all the values that you have as the world, they mean nothing to me. And my values are the values of the kingdom. And so I share what I have. I love others. I extend peace. I extend patience to others. I let kindness be my guide. I attempt to do all these things. And in God the Holy Spirit, with God the Holy Spirit working through me, sometimes they actually happen. Sometimes I actually accomplish them. Not because I'm a doormat, but because I'm empowered to transcend the morality of this world. But all of this is through Him. It's not through me. So if it were on me to lead a Christ-like life? Good luck, like not a chance. If it were on me to understand the teachings of Christ, I mean, the apostles and they're like, oh, we forgot to buy bread. That is head and shoulders above anything that I could possibly come to. It is only with God praying through me, enlightening me, working within me, God the Holy Spirit, animating my heart, animating my soul, animating my actions, that there is any chance for me to enter into a life that in some way reflects the goodness, the wisdom, the joy, the peace of Christ. And this is what the Holy Spirit does within us. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. And here is where the creed gets a tiny bit controversial, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. In the Nicene Creed at the Council of Nicaea, and also at the Council of Constantinople, this actually just said, who proceeds from the Father. So the Son is eternally begotten from the Father, the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father. And this is the way it was for a while. In the 400s, in what's now Spain, Spain was a really important part of the Roman Empire, it was one of the kind of bread baskets of the empire, various emperors came from Spain, it was a really important part of the ancient world. And in Spain, in the 400s, there was a group of Arian Christian, which you may remember from previous episodes, were just followers of this guy Arius of Alexandria and his teachings. They have nothing to do with like the weird Nazi racist ideology. I'm an Arian, you're an Arian, whatever that is. Um, these are just followers of Arius. And Arius is the one who said that Jesus is not really God. Jesus is not really divine. He's kind of, he's a creation of God. He's kind of like the highest angel. So you have a majority of the Christians in Spain at the time are Aryan Christians. You have this very vocal minority who are Catholic, Orthodox, whatever you want to say, traditional, Jesus is divine, Jesus is God, believing Christians. And so for those Christians, the Nicene Creed was extremely important. In the East at this point, in places like the city of Antioch in Syria, you had people saying the creed as part of the regular Sunday liturgy. Later this spreads to Constantinople, later to the rest of the eastern half of Christendom. But in the West, normally the creed was not used in the Sunday liturgy. The creed was a kind of summation of the faith. The creed was what's called a canon, something you could kind of compare a statement to and say, is this Orthodox? Is this Catholic? Is this Christianity or not? But it wasn't something that you stood up and said during the service on Sunday. For these Spanish Christians, they wanted to declare how non-Aryan they were. And so they began incorporating the Nicene Creed into the liturgy. And when it comes to this clause about God the Holy Spirit, they added something. They started saying, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. 
filioque in Latin. And they wanted to say, look, we believe that Christ is divine to such an extent that the Holy Spirit proceeds from him. And in the church, I mean, you can make a completely reasonable theological argument for this. There are theologians who make this as a kind of um, an eternal statement, an argument about the eternal nature of the procession of the Holy Spirit. But in a very plain way, you can say, Christ says, I will send the Holy Spirit. The, the paraclete will come to you after I am gone. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, in a sense, coming through him to humankind. So, if you're just talking about the um, temporal procession of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit in time, that's a reasonable thing to say. If you're talking eternally, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, that is some highfalutin theological argumentation that it's probably not worth going into at this point. But there are two different viewpoints on that. The Western viewpoint, which became dominant in the West, was that the Holy Spirit does proceed from the Father and the Son. The Eastern viewpoint was, no, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. That being said, in the 400s, this was kind of a moot point, because this is just happening in like little village churches in Spain, and nobody else really cared. Fast forward to the 700s, however, and you get to the chapel, the personal chapel of the great Emperor Charlemagne. Charlemagne, of course, is the emperor of a lot of what we now think of as, as Western Europe, of France, of a big chunk of Germany, of the Benelux countries, etc. And in the 700s, you get a visitor from the East who is in Charlemagne's chapel during the liturgy. And they start chanting the creed, and he thinks, oh, that's nice. The Westerners are starting to incorporate the creed into the liturgy. We've been doing this for a few hundred years. I'm glad you're catching up to us. And then they get to this point, proceeds from the Father and the Son, and he says, wait, what? What did you just say? Is that, is that, was that a mistake? Is that written down somewhere? Can I, can I take a look at the paper? Oh my gosh, you're actually saying he proceeds from the Father and the Son? You changed the Nicene Creed? You can't do that. And people say, well, it happened at the Council of Toledo a couple hundred years ago. It was added in, but it was in the context of a church council. And the Greeks say, we don't care. You can't just change the Nicene Creed. Even still, even though this was happening at this really important place, the Emperor Charlemagne's private chapel, it wasn't a universal thing in the West at this point. It's not actually until 1014 that you get this guy, Henry II, and he's about to be crowned Holy Roman Emperor, and he meets up with the Pope to have a cup of coffee and talk about the installation service. They're looking at the seating chart, they're looking at where his mom's going to sit, you know, where the ambassador to Burgundy is going to sit, and they start looking at the liturgy, and Henry II says, wait, where's the creed? And the Pope says, oh, we don't really do the creed in the liturgy in the West. But Henry says, well, we do where I come from. Is there any way we could just add it in for the service? And the Pope says, you know, your coronation, yeah, do your thing. Let's let's throw that in. So from that point on, you get the creed with this filioque, with this this um, word and the son added in to the liturgy, and this starts to drive people in the East bonkers. Not because this one word is like this dramatic alteration of theology. It's less of a huge theological problem, although it is a theological problem in many ways, but it's more the symbol of this new authority that the Pope seems to be taking to himself, kind of proclaiming himself to be chief among Christians or the head of all Christianity or the boss of the global church. And in the East, they're like, 
you're not the boss of the global church. There are five patriarchs. You're one of the five. You're a super important one. It's great. You know, we're a big fan, but uh, it doesn't mean you're the boss of all Christians. And you can't just take what a council did and just do your own thing. That doesn't make, that's not how Christianity has ever worked. And so it becomes this symbol in a way of the rise of a new definition of what the Pope does, of papal authority. There are some other symbols like using unleavened bread in the West, using leavened bread in the East, etc., etc. And eventually these lead up to what's called the Great Schism, in which the Western Church, which becomes the Roman Catholic Church, and the Eastern Church, the Orthodox Church, separate. Before this Great Schism, there was just Christianity. If you were a Christian, you were just a Christian. And it looked similar but different all over the world. After the Great Schism, there are two different brands of Christianity. There's Western Christianity and Eastern Christianity, and they no longer get along. So you have this controversial part, proceeds from the Father and the Son, and then you get back into the part of the creed that everybody, all Christians agree with, with the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. So, God the Holy Spirit is glorified in just the way that God the Father is glorified, in just the way that God the Son is glorified. He is worshipped in the way that God the Father is worshipped, in the way that God the Son is worshipped. He is co-equal, co-eternal. There is one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The next part of the creed gets into what does it look like to have God the Holy Spirit supporting and leading and guiding and shepherding and loving the church? And that's what we'll talk about next time. Thanks so much for being with me for the History of Christianity.